Hi, I'm Aida. And I'm Haley. Welcome to this week's episode of Fly on the Wall. But first, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fly on the Wall Pod. And if you want to email us, you can reach us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. This week, we're lucky to have David Kensinger on the pod. David has worked in all sorts of levels of politics. He started working at grassroots when he was in college, worked for Sam Brownback in his campaigns for representative and senator, and eventually went on to work for Pat Roberts' Senate campaign, as well as his own private firm. David Kensinger, thank you for joining us on Fly on the Wall. So you started in politics in the 90s, working for Sam Brownback in his campaign. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I tell you, actually, I started a little before that. I was an undergraduate at Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts, and worked on some local legislative campaigns. And I was, I arrived there the fall of 89, and 1990, Michael Dukakis's term was up uh, as governor of Massachusetts, and he was very unpopular, so there was a big opportunity for Republicans. And they dramatically increased their numbers in the state assembly from 14 to 34 out of 140. Welcome to Massachusetts. <laughs> and uh, also helped a new state senator at that time uh, named Jane Swift, who would go on to become governor of the Commonwealth. And actually lectured at Williams for her later on. She ran a leadership and politics series there. So that was my first experience really with campaigns. And then graduated in 93, went back home to Topeka, my hometown. And uh, sure enough, there was an open congressional seat. And the best man at my wedding had gone on to be student body president at Kansas State University. And Sam Brownback had been student body president at Kansas State in 1978. And he made it a practice to know and mentor every subsequent student body president there. And he was running for this open congressional seat. And so my best man said, you got you to meet this guy Brownback. I said, what's a Brownback? I've never heard of that. And uh, he was an open candidate for this open congressional seat. And, uh, you know, I had, I had three jobs at that time. I was, I was an assistant debate coach for Lawrence High School, and I was announcing a college television show, college football show on local access cable vision, and I was working in a jewelry store, anything to pay my student loans. But uh, I took a Saturday and drove him around the district and fell in love. So I used my job at the jewelry store to get my wife's engagement set wholesale and asked her to marry me. And after she agreed to marry me, I told her I was quitting my other three jobs and I was going to be a driver on the campaign. But she wouldn't have to work me through law school or med school or anything like that. She just had to get me through one campaign and then I'd have an actual job and a career. And it worked just as we hoped. And that was the Republican Revolution of 1994. Wow. So you stayed with um, Sam Brownback all the way through his re-election. What was that like, becoming his chief of staff and staying with one person? You know, that's neat. You know, was, uh, November 1994, best year of my life. November 8, he wins his first election. November 26, I got married. So uh, I could celebrate my 25th wedding anniversary next month. Uh, and Sam Brownback's career as an elected official has reached a successful conclusion. And I get to go on the next phase mm-hmm. of my life. But, you know, it was neat. Uh, I, was, I was so blessed. I was there. It's like being in a startup at an IPO, if you're with a candidate when they win their first big race. And so got to work with him, got to work with some incredible people. Um, our first leg- I wanted to be legislative director. Uh, I was young. I was 23. But, you know, I was from the district. I'd worked in a campaign. I'd gone to a cool college. I wanted to be legislative director, and they told me they hired somebody else. And I'm like, hey, you probably hired somebody who's like 40 or 50 or somebody who's, you know, a lot older. They said, no, we, we hired a guy who was 24. 
And I'm thinking, I don't know anybody from Kansas who's 24 who's more qualified for this job than I am. He's not from Kansas. He's from Wisconsin. Let me get this straight. He's not from Kansas. He's 24 years old, and you hired him over me. Yeah, he's really smart. He knows about I said, I don't care. They said his name's Paul Ryan. He's a great guy. He doesn't matter. I don't care. Who, who's Paul Ryan? What's he ever going to grow up to do? Um, so worked with Paul on, on Brownback staff for a while. I had a lot of tremendous people on that staff. Eric Melgren, who today is a district court judge, was on that staff. Christina Rocca, who went on to be the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. mission at Geneva, was on that staff. Ajit Pai, who's chairman of the FCC, came through our Senate staff. He was an old Kansas debater that I'd known back in the day. And I got to kind of grow up with Sam Brownback and all those people through that. So that was neat. What a team. And yeah. so what, what was the difference between working on the first campaign and then the re-election campaign? How does... We never ran a re-election campaign for the House. We, we ran for the House in 94. So there were 72, plus or minus, freshman House Republicans elected in 1994. It was the first Republican majority in the House of Representatives since 1954. Um, and we were all excited, so we're coming to the 104th Congress, and we do the contract with America. Three members of that class did not run for re-election. One was a woman named Enid Green Waldholtz, who was from Salt Lake City, whose husband committed like a $2 million fraud against the campaign. Oh <laughs> he went to prison. She didn't get, she didn't run for re-election. It was horrible. The second was a guy named Wes Cooley, who was from, who was from Eastern Oregon who ran heavily on his war record in Korea. The problem being, he had never been to Korea. He was caught absolutely fabricating his wartime record. Uh, I don't think he'd ever heard a shot fired in anger in his life. Uh, and he was forced to step down. And then Sam Brownback, who ran for and was elected to the United States Senate. So of the three who were not running for re-election, we clearly made out the best. Um, <laughs> Bob Dole, in uh, the spring of 1996, had clinched the Republican nomination for president. So he then decided he was going to do that full-time and resigned his Senate seat. And the incumbent governor at the time was a member of a different faction of the Republican Party than was Sam Brownback. Sam Brownback, part of the, we believed, ascendant, conservative, activist, Gingrich wing of the Republican Party, the Reagan wing of the Republican Party. Very much an older Rockefeller progressive style incumbent Republican governor. He chose to appoint his lieutenant governor to Bob Dole's open seat. And there was a special election that fall. They tried to schedule Dole's departure the day after the filing deadline. Dole made this announcement in May, but he made his resignation effective June 11, which was the day after the Kansas filing deadline, June 10. So they were trying to say there should be no special election. But it ended up through a combination of pressure and good, decent people doing the right thing. There was a special election. We had to face her in the primary. Congressman Brownback defeated the appointed senator in the primary, went on to defeat the Democrat candidate in the general election, then stood for the full term in 1998 and was then reelected to his third term in 2004, and then left the Senate on a self-imposed term limit in 2010 and chose Jeff Collier as his lieutenant governor and was elected governor in 2010 and reelected in 2014. And then when he left to be the U.S. ambassador at large for national religious freedom, Jeff Collier became the next governor of Kansas. And that's how all that worked. Wow, that is an incredible story. Yeah. And as the strategic mind behind a lot of these activities, what, what do you look for when you're running a campaign? And, and what kinds of strategies do you employ? You know, I, I mentioned Sam Brownback won his first congressional race the same month I got married. Um, Look for a lot of the same things in a candidate you'd work for, you'd look for in a spouse, okay? 
Number one, the foundation of everything is integrity. Okay, you work for work for and around good people. Fill your life with good people. I always tell people, particularly young people, they're looking at me be getting married. I say, marry somebody you'd want your kids to be like, because there's a really good chance your kids are gonna end up <laughs> like the person you marry. Okay, That's a if that person has is someone you would esteem if your child grew up to be like them then that's a person you marry there might be lots of people you hang out with there might be lots of people you're attracted to you marry the one you want your kids to be like okay um if you're looking for somebody to work for in politics work for somebody you'd name your kid after okay i mentioned paul ryan paul ryan and i are each blessed with three children we each have two boys and a girl we each named our second boy sam that's kind of what we think of Sam Brownback, okay? So you work for somebody you'd name your kids after. And so I, I had the opportunity to work with Sam Brownback and Jeff Collier, people of tremendous character. And, you know, if you make integrity the foundation of everything you do in your personal and professional life, uh, things will work out. You may have successes, you may have setbacks, but uh, the things that matter most will work out fine. So let's go back a little bit to your experience, you know, as a college student, because, you know, most of our listeners are college students. Um, as a strategic mind, as Haley said, like, what, what skills do you think you brought from college to the campaigns in your work? Um, I was blessed to do high school debate in Kansas, as was Jeff Collier. Uh, he was a debater at Thomas More Prep High School in Hayes, where he grew up. I was a debater at <clears throat> Topeka High School. Uh, we consider ourselves, you know, the foremost high school in the state of Kansas. Uh, you might know here at Georgetown, Dean Smith, who was the head coach at North Carolina for a long time. Dean Smith is a Topeka High School graduate. He was actually born in Emporia, Kansas, went through, raised in Topeka. His mom lived in Topeka for a long time. Um, first line of his autobiography is, I am a Kansan. <laughs> and you always tell, he's got that, that, that long, drawn accent. Kansas is a windy place. So a Kansas accent sounds like you're talking to someone outside in a high wind. So it's kind of back in the throat and a little loud and slow. Like, if you want to do a Bob Dole impersonation, just pretend you're outside talking to somebody in a high wind. Because in Russell, Kansas, that's where the wind blows. So, uh, I'm sorry, where did we start at? <laughs> talking about skills that you can Yeah, skills, so communication <laughs> skills. Storytelling, obviously. Um, mental organization. Um... I helped bring that, you know, I was somebody who debated in high school and college. That was great preparation for politics. I learned a lot about grassroots at, uh, organizing in college. That was something we had an opportunity to do, getting to work. And I, I was unpaid and worked at, you know, the most basic level, getting people to go door to door or put up yard signs or walk in parades. Uh, the ability to convince other people to do things that they might not otherwise do ended up being my greatest attribute. Uh, and I was willing to, you know, work cheap. Uh, which is most things you're going to start on, whether it's a start on any small business, a political campaign, you're going to start living like a student. So if you've been a student for a while and you're used to living like a student, that's a nice segue into living a campaign life. And so I brought those things. And I had, I had seen at college what I thought were the nascent dividing lines to what I think our politics has become. I began to see the red-blue divide in very stark ways. And I had thought, you know, Williams College, that's a great entree to Wall Street. I'll go there. I'll go make some money. And I, I saw some things going on at college. I didn't want to see the rest of the country become like Williams. And so I thought that was a chance to go into public service and became partly inspired to go into politics for that. 
So flashing way forward yeah. all the way to 2008, you're no longer living like a student, I hope, um, working for Senator Pat Roberts and his uh, managing his campaign. What was that like? That was a hoot. Um, for Pat Roberts and Sam Brownback, wonderful people, very different people, okay? I worked for Sam Brownback on and off for 25 years, okay? I was his driver. I was his campaign manager. I was his chief of staff. I saw him when he was tired. I saw him when he was elated. I saw him when he was scared. In 25 years, I heard him swear twice. And he apologized immediately to me both times. Okay? I was working for Pat Roberts two weeks. And I swore in front of him and I apologized. And he, he was a Marine. He looked at me like that was the weakest, most unimpressive example of swearing he'd ever heard. And he then proceeded to demonstrate how a Marine does it. So that was a big culture shift. Then I went from that to working for Mike Pence. So all the way back now, had to completely unlearn everything I had learned working for Pat Roberts. And, uh, but very, very similar guys in a lot of ways. They, they have the two attributes that people who are most successful in politics have. They work very hard. And they have great character and manners. And the people who do those two things tend to succeed in anything, especially politics. And, and he's also called you Machiavelli and even a pit bull without lipstick. Yeah. How, how does that even come up? I'll take the pit bull without lipstick. Um, as someone with a political philosophy degree, I'm not thrilled with the Machiavelli comparison. <laughs> I, w I would hope to be a Christian first and someone in politics second. And Machiavelli wasn't so hot on the Christians. Um, I think what he means there is uh, I, I didn't shy from the, the nonviolent combat, which is, which is politics. Politics is a substitute for violence. So I've, I've never expected it to be uncontroversial or, or sought universal love in that way. Um, you know, pit bull without lipstick. You know, I was willing to get in there and make an argument. And I, I think high school debate helped a lot with that. I mentioned Dr. Collier did, did high school debate. Um, I, I think that is a great incubator of civilization. You learn to formulate arguments. You learn to have your arguments tested by others. Iron sharpens iron. You start to see the weak spots in your own argument. You're called upon to argue for positions with which you do not agree. And maybe you learn something there. And you also learn to sit in a room and have people disagree with you and not get angry about it and boy that is something we could sure use in this country and uh, i learned all that from high school debate so i think i think what he means there is you know i was willing to uh do the difficult things uh to help um that was 2008 remember uh so the lipstick comment was probably stolen from sarah palin you're all probably too young to remember this this was 11 years ago Sarah Palin was picked at the Republican National Convention to be McCain's vice president. And she comes out, she had this spectacular debut. She was worth a big bounce in the polls, and she's the media darling very quickly. And her kids played hockey. She's from Alaska. And she comes in and she says, you know what the difference between a hockey mother and a, and a, and a bulldog is? Lipstick. <laughs> so that's what he meant, I think, pit bull without lipstick. That was a Sarah Palin homage. That's so funny. Um, yeah, so... Let's talk a little bit about your work with your private firm. What was it like shifting to more of the private sector after yeah. on those really cool campaigns? Um, I, I was in D.C. for 10 years, and uh, our wife was pregnant with our second child, our daughter Grace, who's 15 now. And we were at our ninth anniversary dinner 
in uh, Old Town Alexandria. She is way pregnant, clumsy pregnant. The part of pregnant where you, you can't be trusted to pour yourself a glass of water. Just all your all your coordination and balance are completely off. Maybe you'll be blessed one day to know what that is. I mean, it's it's that that stage of pregnancy where I mean, all coordination is just out the window. So we're in Old Town, and uh, I, I had really my motivating political objective was I wanted to balance the budget. That was. I, it is a symptom of dysfunction in the body politic when you spend more than you're taking in. No one in politics today practically argues that we should be spending a trillion dollars more a year than we do, particularly in peacetime at full employment, and yet we are. And, you know, back in the 90s, we thought that was something we could do something about. And, in fact, within five years of Republicans taking control of Congress, and in good faith negotiations with the Clinton administration, we, in fact, did balance the budget uh, about two, three years in a row. And I thought I'd really helped make my country a better place. And we'd strengthened America, and you strengthen America, and America, in my opinion, is generally a force for goodness and justice in the world. I thought we'd made a real difference. And then in 2003, Republicans expanded Medicare to add Medicare Part D, which was prescription drug coverage, which was pretty much open-ended, even though over 80% of people on Medicare already had private prescription drug coverage. And according to the Congressional Budget Office, that added uh, over $12 trillion in liability to the federal government with no offset or way to pay for it. And I concluded at that point that the Republican Revolution was over, that big government had struck back, and I probably wasn't making enough of a difference to justify the hours I was working on a public servant's salary, and I thought it was time to go home to Topeka and raise our kids and start making a private sector salary. And my pregnant wife agreed. <laughs> All right, well, Mr. Kensinger, thank you so much for joining us on pod. Pleasure to have you here. You bet. Thanks for having me. Thanks again so much to David Kensinger for joining us on the pod this week. If you liked what you heard, make sure you stay in touch on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at FlyOnTheWallPod. And if you have any comments or questions, as always, you can email us, FlyOnTheWallPodcast at gmail.com. See you next week.